Welcome back to another impactful night of the Educational Leadership Podcast. This is episode 114. I'm your host, Alicia Fraser, on Thursday night. Tonight's are Rick Bolet and Buddy Thornton. Rick Bolet, please say hello to the people. Good evening, good evening, everybody. Great to be here. And Buddy Thornton, the podcast of Change Agent Pro. Please say hello to the people. As usual, very, very delighted to be here with my panel mate. You gotta know this, man. Tonight's topic is Universal Education System Rewired. The universal education system is an intertwined system in which diverse developmental strategies must be approached, keeping in mind that one area can affect growth in another. When we add in children with cognitive delays, we must include social delays because it is common for these individuals to have different interests than same aged peers. In most cases, this can create challenges in social interactions, which may require some extra support. There are four domains of development when thinking about childhood development and education. One, cognitive knowledge and intellectual skills. Two, physical body growth and movement. Three, social interactions with people and the environment that influences them. And four, emotional processing and understanding feelings. With this in mind, we must remember those different communities, especially those in low socioeconomic standing. Itself is not a negative factor in the development, but children living in poverty are more likely to be affected by these negative factors. For instance, for example, children who grow up in homes with limited resources to internet, right, are more likely to experience these scarcities and resources including that of food. Regardless of socioeconomic standing, any child growing up in a home that does not promote academic learning and socialization skills might be improper, might be stagnant in their cognitive and social development. Tonight, we're going to have a discussion. It's going to be deep and it's going to be universal. With that being said, I want to bring back first Buddy Thornton, the Positive Social Change Agent Pro, sir. We know you got a lot going on. We got you got a lot of things going. You got your books. You got you setting up sim- symposiums, seminars, webinars, you name it. But let's hear it from you, sir. Well, uh, yes, you're right. I'm uh, finished with my second book, ready to submit it to the editors, and uh, just really, you know, designing some online courses. Uh, COVID kind of beat me up at the end of August and early uh, September, but uh, I'm back, raring to go, and, uh, you know, not much more to tell you at this point other than, you know, we're working with people. Absolutely. You know, I just came back from parent-teacher conference night. You know, we got to have those, and things have changed now. Uh, they're now virtual, but they still want us to be in the school environment while we're doing it because uh, it gives a certain presence, right, that's needed, that's necessary, that helps reinforce the confidence of especially public education and just, um, you know, academia uh, as a whole. Um, you know, with this in mind, this in mind, 
we are seeing new ways of uh, hurdles, challenges for our, our children. Uh, but uh, I want to pinpoint a question to you uh, to start this discussion outright. Um, I believe this is going to be a, a favorable discussion uh, as, as it relates to um, just the whole um, uh, cognitive uh, developmental stages uh, that sometimes we can overlook uh, as educators, as, as parents, uh, as uh, paraprofessionals, uh, you name it. Uh, so with that being in mind, why do or why are we starting to see new ways of cognitive and social challenges, uh, especially in our low SES communities? All right. And what what can we do? What can we do as positive social change agents? Right. What can we do to help uh, get more engaged? Right. Civically. Uh, engage and uh, more civically involved uh, as it relates uh, to supporting uh, those new necessary support systems as it relates to cognitive and social um, development. That's my first question. Let's start this conversation off with energy. Well, I'm glad you threw that question at me because uh, that's something I've been working on with my third and fourth books that are coming up. And we're going to start with building a little bit of a framework here. When you're starting to look at, especially the kids and coming out of COVID and, you know, regardless of the fact that we're still in COVID, we are starting to get into the long legs of COVID. The kids have been dealing with it. We've been dealing with it as adults for almost two years now. We're going to come up past the holiday season. We're going to hit the two-year mark in uh, the end of January. And these kids, you know, they, this is a significant part of their lifetime. You know, they're, if we're talking about 10, 11, 12 year olds, we're talking about, you know, as much as 15 to 20% of their entire lives have been revolved around dealing with a pandemic environment and being in isolation. And so we have to go back and we have to look at the framework of what adolescents and students in general, what they are dealing with. And, when you're talking about cognitive and social challenges, we have to understand what kids do, especially when they reach a certain age. Now, Coburg's development cycle says that around age 12 or so, kids develop a sense of abstract thinking. Well, kids have been in isolation for two years. They haven't had a lot of interaction. So especially at that 11, 12, 13-year-old age group, they are starting to have abstract thinking, but they're having it in isolation. So what they're getting with that abstract uh, development is what they can gleam out of what they actually have reach on, the Internet, if they have the Internet, from their siblings and from their parents and whatever interaction they are able to get in an isolated situation. Adolescents regardless of their situation, have four drives, yearnings that they always have. Now, this doesn't matter whether there's a pandemic or not, but all adolescents from the age of about 9 or 10, 11, they start to have four yearnings. Number one is they want to stand out. They are starting to find their place in the world, so they want to stand out in a crowd. And this has been suppressed because of the severe isolation effect. They want to know how to fit in. They want to know where they are in the pecking order. But again, same problem as with 
standing out. It's been suppressed because of the isolation effect. And unless they have siblings to play off of, they're really confused as exactly where they fit in the scheme of things because they haven't had any interaction. And for them, this 18 to 20 month delay has left them with no ability to focus on that. And again, the third thing that they have a yearning for is they want the ability to measure up against something. Their classmates, their peers, the people that they interact with at school, in the community. And because of COVID, who are they having to measure up against? If they have siblings, they're lucky. They do have someone to measure up against. But if they don't have siblings, they're measuring up against the adults in the room. That's not kind of fair. They don't have a pecking order except guess who? They're measuring up against themselves. That's not really very fair. The only other thing they could possibly be measuring up against is expectations. And the expectations have been folded back in on themselves because there's no expectations in a pandemic and in an isolation situation other than we're going to do the best we can. Well, they're just learning abstract thinking. How do they quantify the best that they can do? They don't have the experience adults have. So that takes us to the fourth yearning that they have. They're just now learning how to quantify motivation, a way to commit to things, to find out what they have a passion for, what kind of goals they have in front of them, what things do they believe in. And with only their siblings and their parents to gleam off of instead of peers, their belief structure is going to be pretty limited. They don't have a real strong way to develop a quality world because they don't have those people and the social structure to, to build that on. So what we've done is we've microscopically shrunk their future into a very, very small bowl. They have a very tenuous future ahead of them. So now we're talking in general. Now add the low SES scarcity effect and how bad do you think those children have it? What it does overall is it reduces hope. It's bad enough for the upper and the middle class kids, but the, the low SES kids who started with a very, very small helping of hope to begin with, now they are wondering where they're even going to find hope. So what do you think we can do to be civically more involved as change agents? Well, the challenge is to bring back hope. We as adults and as civic leaders and as community participants, we have to create a sense of trajectory. We have to get involved. We have to put adolescents and older students back on target to those yearnings again. We have to give them something to measure up to, and we have to do that by getting involved, not just necessarily at the school level, but we have to do it at the community level and in our neighborhoods. One thing we can do is we can mentor. We have to engage with our heart. We cannot accept the status quo. We're isolated. Everyone's isolated. You know what? That, that's an excuse. It's not, it's not a justification. We can volunteer to join an existing group, even if it's just to engage online and get involved with these kids. Take blaming, shaming, and judging out of the community vocabulary. Anyone who's saying, well, you know, we can blame it on COVID. No, we can't blame it on COVID. There's no reason why we can't get more involved 
Instead of sitting around watching Netflix, we can certainly get involved. We can do whatever it takes to get involved. My mantra is if one member of the community suffers, the community has failed that member. It is not the member being a failure. It takes a village mentality to uplift a community. We have to stop thinking me and start thinking we. If we see a problem and we do nothing, we are the problem. So now what do we do? We can clean our yard. If we have elderly neighbors or we have a disabled person on the block, we can help them do theirs. We can set up a weekly routine and we can start checking on our neighbors. They're your neighbors. If you don't know the names of your neighbor's children, are you being a good neighbor? How about initiating a block party? How about getting out and getting to know your neighbors? There's no reason why we can't do that. We really can't do much of anything else, but we can throw a mask on or we can do whatever we have to do. We can get out and we can be involved in the community because the community and the neighborhood is the smallest unit of measure that we can get involved in as social change agents. We don't need to think global. We need to think local. We can start doing what it takes to make sure the people know that they're not lost in space. There are people who actually do care. Their neighbors care. And once one neighbor cares and more neighbors get involved, you're going to find out that it's really, really easy to get going. Put out flyers and invite someone to a potluck. Don't, don't be crazy about it, but do whatever you need to do. Maybe try to get some type of a park uh, picnic thing going. Invite some uh, budding entertainers from the neighborhood to uh, put on a little bit of a show and rock the place. Be inventive. There's no reason why you can't do that. If we can't be humane during a downturn, when everything opens up, we're going to go back to the same old mantra of, I don't care about my neighbors. Right now, when we can't do anything else, this is the greatest, best time to change the dynamic. Incredible. 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 I, there was so much. I don't have enough time to unpack everything that you said, uh, but it, it brought for me so much affirmation. And what I mean by that, the response that you made was so concrete. Uh, not only was it robust, but it was so solid. Mm. And it it caused me to have a a, a reassurance of, of the cultivation that needs to uh, exist for for us to move forward, to us to cohabitate, to to, to, to cohabitate. Excuse me, moving forward, and, and that's that guidance that we uh, we need so so much uh, as positive change agents right and so that we can have a, a, a consciousness I believe and with this consciousness uh, we can this consciousness can can be purposeful and it can it can help us search right it can help us search for a a conscious purpose so we can we can consciously uh, search purposefully to to redefine our sense of purpose as as humans right um, 
Yeah, as a human species, that was so that was so universal. What you said that is so universal because let's face it, we're stressed, but we don't want to admit that we're stressed because anytime you're you isolate anything, any animal, any living organism, you, you stress them out because we are, are designed as humans to have growth mindsets, not fixed mindsets. So whenever we're isolated and we cannot socialize. We cannot be fruitful. We cannot multiply, whether it be in thought process or interaction. We are really stressed. And it's a type of not only suffering, but a type of death, I believe. And so what you said, it to me redefines positioning. You know, how are we positioning ourselves and, and the community? And and this positioning gives that positive experience that is so necessary for those young minds, those those future leaders to have moving forward. But you throw it in the positive social change agent pro you did it again, sir. You did it again. I cannot wait to see what happens tonight in this conversation. I want to bring next to the panel. We hadn't had him here for a while, but uh, this is going to be a treat. Listen, listen, we have with us uh, none other than the man, the myth, the legend, Rick Bolay. Please say hello again to the people and let us know what you're doing out there, sir. Well, hello, hello. It's uh, good to be back. And uh, I have moved. Uh, I am no longer employed in the state of Texas. I have taken a teaching job in the state of Maine uh, and am very rapidly integrating myself into the society, as they would say, Akia, as the letter R does not, uh, you know, exist as much up here. But uh, I am in a new position, in a new setting, um, vastly different school district than the one I was in before, uh, and so truly enjoying myself and feeling recharged and motivated. Oh, this is going to be good. So, so glad to have you up in Maine. Get ready for your, your, your winter cabin there, uh, but... Listen, I'm just going to throw you this question, and I just want to see how you're going to uh, knock it out of the, the stadium here. And, uh, you know, my question for you, uh, Mr. Rigolet, is why are old teaching strategies, and, it, and if that is incorrect, please correct us on that, but why are old teaching strategies no longer applied and, and new approaches based on youth mental health models are, are now being identified? If that be the case, please let us know, sir, what's your thoughts? Well, uh, I'll start with the back end of the question first and say that generally uh, you have two reasons why new approaches are taken. Uh, first reason is innovation when you think of something new and a potential better way to do it. And the second way is necessity because something is not working. In this case, there's a couple of factors that are driving some changes to the old teaching strategies. Um, new understandings in the mental health field and some of the innovations that have evolved with that are the driving forces that are pushing for change in the educational world when it comes to youth mental health models. But it is important to note that this is nowhere a completed change. A lot of the new talk that we see is spoken of in general and holistic terms, but it has yet to truly take place on an individual basis for many folks. 
When you speak to those folks, they'll talk about new ideas. They'll talk about the need for self-care. Speak of the need to regularly visit a therapist, checking in on the neighbor, making sure that they feel listened to, that they feel supported, that they're getting access or direction to the resources that they need. But by the same token, many of the old stigmas and strategies are still holding sway, and when you push them on it, there are reasons that will be given as to why those additional steps haven't happened yet, right? Denial is not just a river in Egypt. Uh, it's also something that we fight as humans. Uh, even as we have a growth mindset, we fight to stay fixed to what we already know. Now, the issues that were created by COVID that Buddy so eloquently mentioned, they've only made it harder because the adults have been trying to figure out how they are going to deal with all of this, all the while figuring out how to get the kids through this. And all of the politics and all of the things that are involved with that in terms of the difference of responses um, from districts basically pretending that it kind of doesn't exist anymore or we're just not dealing with it to those that are taking more proactive measures. Right? So you have a wide gamut of, of how the situation is being dealt with that also has to be factored into all four of those domains and the four yearnings that Buddy mentioned. And I really like what Buddy said about getting involved, uh, getting everyone involved, I should say. In public education, uh, that should and needs to start with the counselors and then spread through the rest of the staff to the students. Speaking holistically, though, the education system itself is far from a completed transformation when it comes to how those counselors are used in school systems. And standardization is a big barrier and a big cause of that lack of transformation because too many counselors don't have time to educate the faculty and the staff on the new approaches and models because they are still being given tasks as schedulers, as test organizers, and proctors being used as fill-ins to make up for staffing that just wasn't allotted for in school budgets by the choices and priorities of the local school board. Simply put, I, I don't think we're going to truly be able to provide those mental health services to youth in the public education system as effectively as we should until we remove that specter of standardization and provide educators and counselors with enough support that they can then provide that focus and support for the students. That means hiring more counselors and providing educators with benefits that go beyond an occasional decent pay raise, including support for self-care and the time to be able to truly focus on themselves without feeling like their jobs are going to be on the line if they choose to do so. However, it's not all gloom and doom, and I don't want to make it that way, because there are districts such as the one I'm employed with now that have hired uh, resiliency and trauma counselors to help organize the counselors and educate the students, or excuse me, the faculty and the staff to be able to maximize the assistance to the students, especially those who might, might be in need. For example, uh, in our last faculty meeting, we did an exercise where we had to put down uh, an identifying mark next to students that we knew, that we knew something about, that we had conversations with, that we had had dealings with beyond just a, hey, how you doing in the hallway kind of thing. And so they did an analysis of those students and then those that had few to no markings next to them were kind of, be, we're going to be targeting them uh, through what they call like a silent mentor program. We're not going to overtly approach them or talk with them about, hey, you know, we see you're not really being approached. We're just going to simply engage them in conversation just to let them know that someone is there, someone is interested enough in them 
to talk with them and have a, a brief discussion with them, even if it's in part of the hallway. And that's the type of thing that can help really check on your neighbor, as Buddy would say, and help build the community, in this case of the public school, but also is something that we can do just to make sure that our neighbors are engaged, even if only briefly. So there is progress. There are new things that are happening, but we still need to have a ways to go to make sure that they get applied universally. Mr. Rigole, as always, you are so insightful and you are so exposing, right? And and just, you know, the the non-bias from your 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 comments are, are so necessary. You talk about standardization. A lot of uh, school leaders uh, justify standardization by saying that, you know, this is the way to measure uh, uh, teachers across the board. All right. Some educators feel like standardization is a slap in the face, meaning that, you know, you don't really trust um, us to be professional educators, right? Though we are certified, though we have went through the rigor of becoming professional educators, we are still not trusted to teach uh, the children. So we have to teach them through standardization so that we can measure up across the board. And so that justifies funding, you name it, uh, as it relates to education and demography. So, Rich, you are just, you are very uh, no holds bar. Uh, when I ask you questions like that, that's why I invite you onto the podcast because I know I'm going to get that type of response from you uh let me let, let me hold it right there i'm gonna park the car right there let me go back to buddy Thorne. but thank you so much rick Boulay and buddy Thorne for adding so much value to this podcast uh buddy Thorne, real quick what will be the future i would say direction okay moving forward of a cooperative play right now that we have hybrid learning, you know, synchronous and asynchronous learning in our educational mix. What would be the future direction of cooperative play in your opinion, sir? Well, I'm going to get to that question in just a minute, but I want to addendum to what Rick had to say by saying just to finish my first question off, because he gave me one little tidbit that I needed to make sure we wrap that up. The problem, obviously, is that the education system across the country has a very large attic, and that attic is going to hold on to the old for a long time. And as we make the transition to trying to add more counselors and more mental health provisions and what have you, the normative thing to do is to always put the money where the money is always gone. And what we need to do is we need to reverse that, and we need to do it from the bottom up. Because the low SES schools and low SES districts are the ones who are begging and needing and screaming for that help. And they need to get it first. Because if they don't get it first, they're going to occupy the attic for a long time while all the other districts prosper. So we need to remember that if we don't approach it from a bottom-up perspective, we're not going to meet the challenge of bringing them to the new perspective to the new world fast enough they need to be brought to the front in that respect so let's let's just keep that to the forefront but now let's get to your Amen. question yeah now what will be the future direction of cooperative play well let's address a couple of things 
across the board, we need to accept the reality that our children are already digital citizens. Uh, I don't know. I'm in a four-generation household, so I, I have digital citizens all around me. Uh, they need to be the co-creators of incentivized learning dynamics. They already know more about the digital world than most of the people who are teaching them. We need to convert in-person concepts to dual platforms and let them run with the ball. You know, there's a lot of things that are being taught in the classroom that could be digitized. And once they're digitized, the kids are going to take a look at them and go, hmm, that could be done a different way or that could be done better. And they're going to teach us or they're going to help us adapt or they're going to help us evolve. They're going to at least let us know when we're off the rails or when we're off course. And if we co-create the world according to what they see in the digital world and we actually take the hints that they give us, especially the superstars among them, we're going to find out that education is going to reach an entirely new era. The cooperative play model actually is the sixth level of early childhood development around age five or six. But it's a cyclical effect. It resurfaces at that age 11 to 13 when abstract thinking kicks in. Cooperative play resurfaces as coopetition in the competitive model when the kids are starting to pick up a strong pecking order effect and they get into that yearning, the four yearnings or the drives that the teenagers and the adolescents and then the older kids get into as they try to find out where they fit in the world and how they design their quality world. So that cooperative play model moves with them and it just moves with them right into adulthood, but then it kind of evolves into more of a cognitive foundation for how we live as adults. So what we need to do is we need to understand that the cooperative play model is really how people kind of play off of each other. It's an ebb and flow type of thing. And so middle school teachers need to be prepared to chase the overachievers and they need to struggle to keep the rest up to speed just to make sure that the digital presence that we've started to really embrace during the COVID era takes full effect. We're still going to need hands-on teaching because we need to move what's in the digital world back into the real world and we need to teach application. If we don't just teach concepts, which concepts, yes, abstract concepts are great, but if kids just learn abstract concepts and they never understand how to apply them and make them work in the real world, they're just going to have knowledge that is just going to sit in their head and they're going to have no way to move forward with it. So there's just there's that disconnect that we don't want to happen. So it's a hybrid model, yes. It's going to always be a hybrid model. And it, anyone who ever tries to say, no, we can get beyond the hybrid model, I'm going to say, no. 50 years from now, when I'm long gone, the hybrid model is still going to have to exist because you cannot teach application in a digital system. Application is real world only. So we have to kind of look at it this way. There's a new moniker that they use, digizens, digital citizens put together. Anyone over 40 has no chance to keep up. So it's the kid's world. Feed them the concepts to absorb them as fast as you can give it to them. Have the next round prepared already. The twist is going to be holding them back until they actually learn the applications. You keep them grounded in the real world until they learn the applications. Hope we can keep up with them because as they start to learn the applications, they may run away from us.
the biggest mistake we can make is assume that we're going to stay ahead of them because we're not going to stay ahead of them. You know, we might we might get lucky. They might just chain, chain us to them and drag us along with them. That might be our lucky spot. So, again, to me, the biggest challenge is remaining in their quality world long enough to influence them positively, to get them to think in pro-social ways, to start eliminating some of the mistakes we've made in the pre-digital era so that they can correct some of the things that we've done wrong and they can improve the world as they move along. You see why we had to get you two on the panel discussion tonight? I mean, you know, come on. That was well said, sir. Very well said. There's a thin line, I believe, between co-opetition and competition, right? Uh, but like we, we mentioned earlier in, in the intro with those four domains, you know, we have to have a hybrid in the mix because of that physical, that, that physical domain that has to happen that's a part of the developmental stages for children. I know, uh, you know, this is why field trips are so uh, necessary and so important uh, for those those younger um, those younger children in elementary, so they can have that physical contact, that hands-on contact, as they're going to a, a zoo or going to a playground. They can feel and touch and learn and see those those butterflies out there, see those caterpillars out there and have that experience with them. And that is a part of learning that the human body uh, has to have. And yes, it's tied to social interactions as well, uh, but I believe social interactions can be done, like you said, digitally. Uh, you said so much, I cannot believe we're out of time already, but before, don't go anywhere. Before, let me go to, let me go back to Rick Bollet real quick. I, I can't believe how much time has got away from us. Uh, Mr. Bollet, let me ask you uh, another question here because we got to wrap things up. I cannot believe it that we've been on here um, already almost past time. But based off of what you heard uh, Buddy Thornton say, right, and using your experience uh, as a uh, an educator, right, as, as, as a... Um, a musician, as even as a uh, you know a, a president of teacher unions, right? Um, you have been uh, on countless, countless uh, speaking platforms where you have had to use uh, deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning, and so with and that my being said. Voice. <laughs> And, and, and your what? And my teacher voice. Right. <laughs> and your teacher voice. Absolutely. You already know it, right? You already know it. So using, uh, using your experience, right, and your perception, keeping this in mind with your inductive and deductive reasoning uh, strategies, from a, I would say a politician standpoint, what new educational policies do you perceive that will be coming down the pipeline in the future? That's my question. I think that in America, we're still fighting the battle to determine what those policies are going to be. 
And the reason that I say that is that standardized testing tied to school funding is still the law of the land in most of the country. And there's billions of dollars to be made by the companies that create those tests that don't want to give it up. Um, John Dewey had some excellent ideas when it came to education in terms of individual engagement with students and, and, and various things. Unfortunately for him and for us, another group of reformers was also arising at that time. Those reformers were interested in running public schools, quote unquote, more efficiently as much or more than running them effectively. And there's a difference. Over time, that's fostered a school of thought of kind of being, well, parsimonious with public education investment, as though it's some kind of scam to put money into it. Uh, I'm talking about phrases like doing more with less. You're in education for the outcome, not the income. Those are our tax dollars competing for funding and the idea that funding and budgeting for public education should be some sort of zero-sum fight where one person's gain has to mean that someone else loses out. Um, worst of all, and Buddy alluded to that, is this cockamamie idea of reducing funding for schools that are getting issues or having issues through either student relocation or sending public education funding to for-profit or charter schools. To be frank, those are not ideas that guarantee student success. They're the ones that guarantee systemic failure. I am very much of the, the, the standpoint and the belief that there are two things that should not be for profit. The first is health care. The second is education, and especially the public education, to be specific. My reason why is simple. Any for-profit entity, no matter how benevolent or well-meaning, has to put profit first as part of its business model, or it's not going to survive. That's basic capitalism, and I'm not being critical. So when it comes to those two things that I spoke of, healthcare and public education, when the chips are down, those for-profit companies will choose profit over the people that they are supposedly serving. Again, I'm not being critical here. They have to do that because of their business model or they won't survive. Not an indictment of capitalism. But here's the problem, and we've had numerous discussions about this, Buddy and you and I and other panelists. What are the two things that you really got to have to have as a foundation to succeed in America? Good health and a good education. But right now we have a system where we are literally putting our chances for success into the hands of people and companies where our success as people will never be a priority above their own profit. And that's why, despite trillions of dollars of spending on these standardized tests over several decades, America is still not moving educationally in a lot of ways and still running in the middle of the pack when you compare, compare us to other countries. That's not going to change until we throw off that stranglehold of dependency speaking of addiction that Buddy mentioned, on standardized testing that currently exists right now. There is an African proverb that says that until the lion wins, the hunter will write the stories. It's time for the lion of education to win. And once that happens, then I think you're going to see some shifts back towards some of the better ideas and concepts of John Dewey. And you're going to see some shifts towards the model and the outstanding support that the Finnish educational system is currently providing its students and educators. I think you're going to see a shift in focus towards more individualized effective outcomes for students and better working conditions and holistic support for educators in general. But to get there, we just have to get past this 
overemphasis and prioritization on the whole standardized testing being tied to public school funding idea. That's the thing that really cripples and paralyzes because districts are looking going, but, but, but our funding. And we can't do stuff that isn't paid for. So we have to break that bond between standardized testing and public school funding. And we have to instead embrace the idea that investing in public education, whether or not you have children in the system, doesn't matter. Embrace the idea that investing in public education is a worthwhile endeavor. And it is because the public education system impacts every single American every single day. It is our society. It is part of our society. It has been the fabric of our society and we have allowed it to become tattered and ripped apart and a little bit more fragile because of what we have done with tying standardized testing to public education funding and trying to make one size fit all when it really doesn't. Duff was the one and only Rick Bolay. You know all I got to say on that is glory, glory, hallelujah, since I made my <laughs> Listen, what are the takeaways for the night? We're out of time. Who wants to go first? Well, I'm going to jump in since Rick needs to catch his breath. You know, uh, he's absolutely correct, but here's the problem, and this is the disconnect that I see since I'm not an educator, since I'm a mentor, and since I'm a parent coach and a life coach, here's the disconnect. When we put profit above the value of one life, we are removing ourselves from the equation in the wrong direction. Immanuel Kant said in his second categorical imperative that a human is not a means to an end, he has to be a means unto himself, which means the value of one life has to be defined unto itself. Everyone's life has to be considered equal. It isn't when what your origin story is, it isn't the zip code you live in, it isn't your legacy story, your, your ancestors. Every valued life has to be equated from the beginning as being the same in the eyes of the education system. And until they separate those scores from the funding and say, we need to target the low SES districts, we need to bring them up to standard and we need to let them to define the standard and bring them up to standard and we need to allow the people who are at a standard be on cruise control if need be until we create social equity. We cannot solve all of the other social problems that we have because as Rick very eloquently said, the only two factors that drive people from the age of 20 to 80 is health and education. A little luck sprinkled in, some salt and pepper called luck, but we have to have good health and we must have education. And when 68 to 70% of our low SES students have no hope for a good education, that is a guaranteed social failure in our society. And that has to stop. I would say that it is not enough to say we must do. There are so many reasons that are given by people to not do things. I think what you've heard here tonight 
is a pretty clear and well-defined and passionate set of arguments that compel us to do. The question is now whether or not we will answer that call. If we are to achieve, we must do. Words will not be enough. They must be supported, reinforced, and moved by actions. And they do have to start with the smallest among us, the weakest among us, the most in need among us, because the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. We will do ourselves no favors if we work to break that link rather than strengthening it. Tonight, you just witnessed a phenomenon. This was Universal Education System Rewired Talent Tonight Replay, based on Positive Social Change Agent Pro. Good night. God bless you.